Chapter Two of The Mohawk Valley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Mohawk Valley: Its Legends and Its History by W. Max Reed. Chapter Two: The Mohawks. The earliest record of the Mohawk Indians, whose aboriginal name, as given by the Jesuit priest Jean Brebeuf, was Anieranons, contracted to Anieres, the people of the Flint, later called Mahaqua by the Algonquins, Maquas by the Dutch, and Mohawk by the English, is derived from Jacques Cartier's account of his voyage up the St. Lawrence to Hochelaga, Montreal, in 1535. From their traditions they were driven out of Canada by the Algonquins, probably during the latter part of the sixteenth century, because the large village that Cartier visited in 1535 was deserted and destroyed when Champlain visited this spot in 1608. It is probable that they made their way direct to the Mohawk Valley, but, being numerically weak, chose for new homes secluded spots deep in the forest, four or five miles from the Mohawk River, to build their palisaded castles, one of which, but recently discovered, I visited in the month of July, 1899. At that season of the year we find men all over the country attacked with a desire for a little relaxation from business, or the regular routine of life, and a longing to flee from urban surroundings and spend a season in the fields and forests away from the abode of men, and, with gun and line, provide their daily food. We are apt to call it sport, but is it not rather the old Adam that is asserting itself, an intimate longing to return to the primitive condition of man and battle a while with nature for our own sustenance? It is true that we like to take some of the luxuries of life with us when we go into the forests, but the greatest pleasure of it all is the freedom from care and the feeling that we are providing for our wants with our own hands and by our own exertions. Our thoughts are apt to revert to the time when the hardy pioneer was obliged to live as we are living, with the addition of a great deal of hard work and suffering thrown in. And then we think perhaps of the aborigines. Their mode of life and apparent freedom from cares has a charm for us for the time being, and we imagine we would like to adopt their customs and be forever free from the requirements of society and the fear of protested notes and overdue bills payable and the uncertainty of bills receivable. But this longing lasts only a short season and education asserts itself, and we are glad to get back to the old treadmill, thankful if we can but bring with us renewed health and strength for our battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Our sojourn in the northern forests, however, lacks one element of the life of the aborigines, and that is the constant watchfulness against savage enemies, and the necessity of selecting for a home some secluded spot, which nature and their rude art could make into a fortress. I have in mind such a spot which has lately been discovered by accident after having been abandoned for three or four centuries. In the year 1892, George W. Chapin, a woodman residing between Fonda and Johnstown, 
returning to his home from the latter place, through a lonely wood on the bank of the Cayadutta Creek, observed a hole in the ground that had lately been made by a woodchuck. Examining the earth thrown out by the nimble feet of the rodent, he observed a fragment of pottery, which, upon examination, was found to be a piece of decorated earthenware of Indian manufacture. The discovery having been communicated to the late A. G. Richmond, W. M. Beauchamp of the New York State Museum, and others, excavations were made, which established the fact that the site of an ancient Indian fort, hitherto not known or suspected, had been discovered. Many interesting articles of Indian manufacture have been unearthed, some of which have been illustrated by W. M. Beauchamp in the New York State Museum bulletins, and the spot described by Robert M. Hartley in the Popular Science News, June 1896. Within a few weeks I made three visits to this interesting spot with various friends, and must confess that it has a great charm to me. But although the articles brought away were numerous, they were of small value when compared with those secured by earlier visitors. I wish to thank Mr. Charles Gardiner of Johnstown for his explicit instructions how to find the place. He said, Get off at the station of Salmonsville, walk up the track about a quarter of a mile, or until you come to an old stump field, pass through the stump field and the woods adjoining until you come to a ravine, cross the ravine, and there you are. My first visit was made with Myron W. Reed for a companion, but when we arrived at the stump field, he was so charmed by the liquid jingling notes of numerous bobolinks that he deserted me for the time being and left me to pursue my quest alone. Thanks to Mr. Gardiner's instructions, the place was found without any trouble. Subsequent visits were made, and each time resulted in interesting discoveries. I wish to say, however, that previous investigators undoubtedly were just as successful, or perhaps more so than I was. The site of this ancient Indian fort is located on a high, broad point of land, between two ravines, which grow deeper as they approach the bed of the Cayadutta Creek that flows by its western boundary. Both ravines run in a southerly direction, and through the easterly ravine flows a small permanent stream. The approach to the high ground of the Indian village from the Cayadutta Creek seems to have been through the latter ravine, which becomes a narrow, slaty gorge as it approaches the flats of the Cayadutta Valley, and owing to the dense growth of small trees and underbrush, the entrance is not easily seen from the creek below. The gorge itself is quite picturesque, and its present condition suggests a possible method of defense used by the Indians, large trees having been felled and thrown into the bed of the creek, forming a rude breastwork. Even in the present condition of the huge rotten trunks, they present an obstacle not easily overcome by the investigator. As you enter the gorge from below, you encounter a series of slaty ledges, over whose moss-covered surface the stream trickles slowly, making a series of slimy steps extending upward for twenty or thirty feet, or to the level of the higher ground of the forest. 
on the west side of the gorge these slaty steps have been worn smooth and rounded by countless footsteps up to a point about ten feet from the entrance where a trail is seen ascending the side of the hill to the plateau above as the trail or path approaches the top it is worn in some places from four to six inches deep along the edge of the hill showing that the place had been occupied for a considerable space of time by a numerous population the plateau itself extends north to a considerable distance and is well covered with trees of large size and the rotten trunks of many monarchs of the forest the place suggests seclusion and its stillness is almost oppressive the only evidence of life observable was the scurry of a solitary partridge chick and the dismal croak of a paterfamilias crow evidently solicitous for the safety of his little family in the top of one of the tall pines take it all in all i would not recommend it as a very desirable place for a sunday school picnic this spot has undoubtedly been visited by a number of diggers as is seen by the upturned black earth plentifully sprinkled with small fragments of freshwater clamshells and occasional bits of pottery it is evident that this spot was once an indian fortification as the line of the palisade is seen stretching across the plateau from ravine to ravine although i was unable to secure many relics of intrinsic value my search was quite successful and resulted in unearthing a stone axe a broken stone pestle a few bone tools and flint implements together with forty fragments of as many decorated vessels of indian pottery one of the most interesting articles that have been unearthed is a brass or copper bead about six inches long this was found by mr a g richmond a few years ago and is valued from the fact that it enables archaeologists to fix the probable date of the occupation of this secluded spot by the indians as this is the only article found there that would indicate that the occupants had ever come in contact with white men it must have been occupied previous to 1609 and subsequent to the discovery of the river st lawrence in 1535 many archaeologists are of the opinion that the iroquois were the people whom jacques cartier met at hochelaga montreal and stadaconay quebec on the occasion of his ascent of the st lawrence in 1535 and they advance the theory that they were driven out of canada between that time and 1609 when champlain found a new people at stadaconay quebec and hochelaga montreal entirely deserted w m beauchamp in a recent communication says i should date the mohawk fort cayadutta a little before sixteen hundred and think they had these long brass beads from the french they are much alike and unquestionably european we are to remember however that the iroquois had villages as far down as quebec in fifteen thirty five and seem to have often visited the mouth of the river where vessels often touched parkman says in the vocabulary of the language appended to the journal of cartier's second voyage canada is set down as a word for town or village it bears the same meaning in the mohawk tongue 
the language of Stadacone, or Quebec, when Cartier visited it, was apparently a dialect of the Iroquois. You will probably remember that Cartier's first voyage was made in 1534, at which time he struck the mainland at Gaspé, opposite the island of Anticosta, and that he kidnapped two young Indians. These young savages returned with him in 1535, acting as interpreters, and are said to have been a part of a war party from Hochelaga, speaking a different language from the Indians of Gaspé, at which place they were found by Cartier. There was also a tradition among the Agnese, Mohawks, that their ancestors were once settled in Quebec, and relics found at Montreal correspond with articles found in Iroquois burial places in western New York. Therefore, we think it is safe to assume that the Cayadutta Fort was probably one of the earliest settlements of the Iroquois, Mohawks, in the Valley of the Mohawk, and a place of great historic interest from the prehistoric character of the relics found there. Parkman, in his Pioneers of France and the New World, says, When America was first made known to Europe, the part assumed by France on the borders of that New World was peculiar, and is little recognized. While the Spaniard roamed sea and land, burning for achievement, red-hot with bigotry and avarice, and while England, whose soberer steps and a less dazzling result, followed in the path of discovery and gold-hunting, it was from France that those barbarous shores first learned to serve the ends of peaceful commercial industry. A French writer, however, advances a more ambitious claim. In the year 1488, four years before the first voyage of Columbus, America, he maintains, was found by a Frenchman. Cousin, a navigator of Dieppe, being at sea off the African coast, was forced westward, it is said, by winds and currents, to within sight of an unknown shore, where he presently described the mouth of a great river. On board his ship was one Pinzon, whose conduct became so mutinous that, on his return to Dieppe, he made complaint to the magistracy, who thereupon dismissed the offender from the maritime service of the town. Pinzon went to Spain, became known to Columbus, told him of his discovery, and joined him on his voyage in 1492. In the year 1535, Jacques Cartier, a Frenchman, sailed from the ancient town of Saint-Malo, France, and entered the Bay of Saint Lawrence, as Cartier named it, in August or September of the same year. Having with him the two Indian lads captured in his former visit to these shores, he found them of great assistance in communicating with the natives. They are supposed to have spoken the Mohawk dialect. It is said that the Indian name for the St. Lawrence River was Hochelaga, and that the present site of Quebec was called Stadacona, whose king's name was Donacona. Cartier says that the country below Stadacona, Quebec, was called Saguenay, and that above, Hochelaga. At Stadacona, Cartier was told of a large Indian town, many days' journey above, which was called Hochelaga, and had given the name to the river and country also. 
passing up the river with a small galleon and two open boats and about fifty sailors on the second of october fifteen thirty five they reached the mysterious hochelaga their landing was made just below the present quays of montreal and thronging the shores were a thousand or more indians awaiting the strangers the next morning they were conducted to the indians town lying under the shadow of the mountain which cartier named mont royal montreal hence the name of the busy city which now holds the site of the vanished hochelaga a later writer lescarbot insists that the country on both sides of the st lawrence from hochelaga to its mouth was called canada the derivation of the name canada is undoubtedly indian and not spanish and it is a singular fact that in the vocabulary of the language of hochelaga appended to the journal of cartier's second voyage canada is set down as meaning town or village and that it bears the same meaning in the mohawk and both languages are dialects of the iroquois quoting still from parkman's notes that the indians of hochelaga belong to the huron iroquois family of tribes is evident from the affinities of their language and from the construction of their houses and defensive works this was identical with the construction universal or nearly so among the huron iroquois tribes it is said that in eighteen sixty a quantity of indian remains were dug up at montreal that evidently belonged to the iroquois and not to the algonquin type there is said to be a tradition among the Anyers, mohawks one of the five nations of the iroquois that their ancestors were once settled at quebec a tradition recorded by colden in his history of the five nations iroquois that they were formerly settled near montreal is of interest the tradition declares that they were driven thence by the adirondacks which was the distinctive name of the tribes of the algonquins located in canada it is said that when champlain in 1603 passed up the st lawrence sixty-eight years after cartier's visit hochelaga and its savage population had vanished and in their place were a few wandering algonquins of different tongues and lineage champlain in 1609 met them again on the shores of lake champlain called by the natives iroquois lake champlain's account of the meeting is so interesting that i will transcribe it in his own words at nightfall we embarked in our canoes to continue our journey and as we advanced very softly and noiselessly we encountered a party of iroquois on the twenty ninth of the month july sixteen o nine about ten o'clock at night at a point off a cape which juts into the lake on the west side they and we began to shout each seizing his arms we withdrew towards the water and the iroquois repaired on shore and arranged all their canoes the one beside the other and began to hew down trees with villainous axes which they sometimes got in war and others of stone and fortified themselves securely our party likewise kept their canoes arranged the one alongside the other tied to poles so as not to run adrift in order to fight altogether should need be 
we were on the water about an arrow shot from their barricade. When they were armed and in order, they sent two canoes from the fleet, which consisted of twenty-four canoes and sixty savages, to know if their enemies wished to fight, who answered they desired nothing else, but that just then there was not much light, and that we must wait for day to distinguish each other, and they would give us battle at sunrise. This was agreed to by our party. Meanwhile the whole night was spent in dancing and singing, as well on one side as on the other, mingled with an infinitude of insults and other taunts such as the little courage they had. How powerless their resistance against our arms, and that when day would break they should experience this to their ruin. Ours likewise did not fail in repartee, telling them they should witness the effect of arms they had never seen before, and a multitude of speeches as is usual at a siege of a town. After the one and the other had sung, danced, and parliamented enough, day broke. My three companions and I were always concealed, for fear the enemy should see us preparing our arms as best we could, being, however, separated, each in one of the canoes belonging to the savage Montagnes. After being equipped with light armor, we took each an arquebus and went ashore. I saw the enemy leave their barricade. They were about two hundred men, of strong and robust appearance, who were coming slowly towards us, with a gravity and assurance which greatly pleased me, led on by three chiefs. Ours were marching in similar order, and told us that those who bore three lofty plumes were the chiefs, and that there were but three, and that they were to be recognized by those plumes, which were considerable larger than those of their companions, and that I must do all I could to kill them. I promised to do what I could, and that I was sorry they could not clearly understand me, so as to give them the order and plan of attacking their enemies, as we should undoubtedly defeat them all. But there was no help for that, that I was very glad to encourage them, and to manifest to them my good will when we should be engaged. The moment we landed, they began to run about two hundred paces toward their enemies, who stood firm, and had not yet perceived my companions, who went into the bush with some savages. Ours commenced calling me in a loud voice, and making way for me opened in two, and placed me at their head, marching about twenty paces in advance, until I was within thirty paces of the enemy. The moment they saw me, they halted gazing at me and I at them. When I saw them preparing to shoot at us, I raised my arquebus, and aiming directly at one of the three chiefs, two of them fell to the ground by this shot, and one of their companions received a wound of which he died afterwards. I had put four balls in my arquebus. Ours on witnessing a shot so favorable for them, set up such tremendous shouts that thunder could not have been heard, and yet there was no lack of arrows on one side and the other. The Iroquois were greatly astonished seeing two men killed so instantaneously, notwithstanding they were provided with arrow-proof armor, woven with cotton thread and wood. This frightened them very much. Whilst I was reloading, one of my companions in the bush fired a shot which so astonished them anew 
seeing their chief slain they lost courage took to flight and abandoned the field and their fort hiding themselves in the depths of the forest whither pursuing them i killed some others our savages also killed several of them and took ten or twelve prisoners the rest carried off the wounded fifteen or sixteen of ours were wounded by arrows they were promptly cured after having gained the victory they amused themselves plundering indian corn and meal from the enemy also their arms which they threw away in order to run better and having feasted danced and sung we returned three hours afterward with the prisoners the place where this battle was fought is in forty-three degrees some minutes latitude and i named it lake champlain end of chapter two recording by roger moline